You know, the Catechism of the Holy Catholic Church can be vastly underrated in terms of its ability to convey sort of practical wisdom. And one particular point of wisdom, which I've always found to be particularly compelling, is this notion of sources of morality, right? So whether we're talking about intention, object, or circumstances. And without going into a whole lot of detail, the underlying point is that in order for a moral action to be good, the whole thing has to be good. And so the thing you're trying to achieve has to be good, but also your underlying intention has to be good. And what this means, practically speaking, is that the thing that you're doing might be good in and of itself. So it's not intrinsically evil, but at the same time, if it's done for the wrong reason or less than a perfect reason, then it takes away from the overall goodness of that act. And it just so happens that one of the very best ways to expound upon this particular point is to openly reflect on one of Jesus' most overlooked parables, the parable of the master and his servants, which you can only find in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. So the Lord basically begins the parable by giving a hypothetical, right? So he's talking to his audience. And what he says to them is like, look, imagine you're a master who has a servant. And your servant has just come into the home where you reside after having worked in the field or tending sheep and whatnot. If you think about it, you wouldn't expect that servant to immediately sit down to eat and drink with you, right? Instead, you would expect that servant to serve you because, of course, after all, he's simply a servant. And after that, you wouldn't expect a servant to demand thanksgiving or praise because he simply did what he was supposed to do. And then the Lord ends with this really provocative statement. And so what he basically says is, so it should be with each one of you. You should say at the end of doing your work, look, we're only unworthy servants. We only did what we were supposed to do. Okay, now on the face of it, it's understandable that if you first hear that parable, especially that last statement, you might be kind of thrown off, right? Because, yeah, on the face of it, it seems kind of unnerving. It gives the impression the Lord is this really unreasonable, ungrateful ogre. But in response to that, perhaps I might suggest kind of two things. First of all, whenever you look at any parable of Christ, even though it's true that certain characters obviously are meant to represent God the Father, like the master, the, the landlord of the vineyard, for example, it's never a one-to-one -one thing, right? So the way that the master or the, or the owner of the vineyard is described in any particular parable is not exactly what God the Father is actually like. But that, of course, leads us to the second related point, the notion that the Lord typically uses a provocative, unsettling imagery and language to make his point in the context of the parables. And so in the context of this particular parable, the parable, again, of the master and his servants, what's the point that's being conveyed? This notion that you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, such that the challenge and invitation, if you will, is to examine our own hearts, to ask ourselves the question, why is it that we do the things that we do? Are we truly acting purely out of love for God? Or in fact, are we being unduly influenced by the world, being driven forward by lesser motivations, if you will? To further illustrate this point, I want to cite the writings of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who describes the typical ways in which we tend to relate to God the Father using three really striking images, the kiss of the feet, the kiss of the hands, and the kiss of the mouth. And so with regards to this image of the kiss of the feet, basically this is the type of relationship you would find typically between a master and a slave, right? Where the slave obeys the master, but he's motivated by lesser motivations particularly by fear, right? Fear of a harsh word, fear of physical punishment, fear of even being sold. Now, in contrast, think about the kiss of the hand. And so perhaps we might say that this particular image describes the relationship between an employer and his employee. And so, yes, again, perhaps there's obedience and a certain correspondence to the will of the employer on the part of the employee, but what's the underlying motivation? The underlying motivation is self-interest. So maybe the employee is looking for a raise, maybe the employee is looking to be named employee of the month, uh, whatever the case may be. 
And so again, here's an example of something which seems to be good on the surface, but it's another example of a good action being done from a somewhat less than perfect motivation. But that, of course, brings us to the third image, this image of the kiss of the mouth. And perhaps we might say this describes the relationship between a husband and his wife in the context of marriage in its idealized form. So the whole idea here is that whether we're talking about the husband or the wife, the spouses relate to each other with purity of intention. And so they're not motivated by fear, they're not motivated by self-interest, but instead they're truly willing the good of the other as other. Purity of love in every sense of the word. And of course, the takeaway message, if you pull all these different images together, is to basically suggest that even though there might be many times where we truly believe in our hearts that we're acting in right relationship with God, you know, truly acting purely out of love for Him as opposed to some sort of competing motivation, the reality is probably something else. Probably we're being tainted in terms of our underlying motivations, which are more of the world than of the Lord. And so to use a really easy example, think about how we typically learn and grow in the context of the moral life. And so, for example, when you're a kid, perhaps you don't understand right away that your deepest desires actually correspond with the desires that God has for your life. And maybe on top of that, you don't understand that the commandments are inherently good. Like they're not arbitrary rules kind of imposed to you from on high. And in the absence of clarity with regards to those two different points, what are we left with in terms of our understanding of the moral life? Fear of the stick, right? Fear of punishment, fear of reprisal. Like I only do the good thing not because I recognize that it's good, but rather because I'm afraid of my parents. Mommy or daddy might get mad at me, or God might be upset, or God might send me to hell. And of course, at the end of the day, what is this but the kiss of the feet? Or to think about a slightly different example, think about the dispensation from the Sunday obligation. And so obviously during this recent time of pandemic, especially during the first couple of lockdowns, various dioceses throughout the world issued this dispensation from the Sunday obligation. And so therefore, during these times of dispensation, there wasn't this absolute obligation to attend Mass on Sundays, especially if you had a pre-existing health condition, or you were part of a vulnerable segment of the population, or you were simply afraid of the ongoing pandemic. But you see, what's interesting is that even though the dispensation was eventually lifted, as we all know, at the same time, a lot of people didn't come back to Mass. Now, obviously, that could be for a whole variety of reasons, right? It could be because of you know, a deeply ingrained habit of not going to Mass. It could be because of simply ongoing fear of the pandemic. In any case, the thing I want to impress upon you is that this particular societal phenomenon has revealed to us in a certain sense, in retrospect, that the main reason why a lot of people went to Sunday Mass before the pandemic was not because necessarily they loved the Eucharist, and it wasn't because they saw an inherent value in Sunday worship, but rather because of duty and obligation and perhaps even fear. Like, I go to Mass because I'm commanded to go, because I'm commanded to keep holy the Sabbath day, and maybe on top of that, I go because otherwise I'm afraid of going to hell. And again, what is that but the kiss of the feet, and at most, the kiss of the hand? But that, of course, brings us to the final image, the kiss of the mouth, right? Which in turn forces us to ask this really important question. What do we think God is asking of us in terms of our particular relationship with Him? Well, in response to that particular question, Bishop Robert Barron actually has a really interesting response. So basically what he says or suggests is that what God wants from us is growth. What He wants from us is progression. And so perhaps we begin on the level of repentance, repenting of our sins, making a firm amendment in our heart to go the way of conversion. And what is that but the kiss of the feet? But again, the whole idea here is to not stop there, but instead to continue to grow and progress until we reach the stage of discipleship with this firm corresponding resolution to become another Christ in this world. And what do we find in this, but in a certain sense, the kiss of the hand? But that, of course, brings us to the third and final stage, which again is the kiss of the mouth. 
And so at this point, we've moved past repentance. We've moved past discipleship even in a certain sense. And now we've become truly friends of our Father in heaven. So just to kind of bring it home, imagine God the Father is speaking to you right now and He's speaking to your heart. And He's speaking about what kind of relationship He wants from you. And so maybe He says something to you like this. Look, I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be afraid of me. I know a lot of people in this world, they are afraid of me. And I know perhaps that's, that's a concept that you grew up with. But in reality, I don't really want you to be afraid of me. And on top of that, I don't want you to be self-seeking. I don't want you to be selfish. I don't want you to relate to me or to kind of do the things that I want you to do or do good deeds simply because you want some sort of external reward, whether it's like the promise of heaven in the future or even spiritual consolations in the context of prayer. I said, I want you to do the right thing. I want you to do my will simply because it's the right thing to do, quite apart from what you feel. And again, quite apart from any sort of external reward. Because at the end of the day, what do I want from you? I want you to be with me. I want you to trust me. I want you to love me for real. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And when you do that, my joy will be in you, and your joy will be complete. And may God bless you all.